You are listening to LEC Online Church, a ministry of Lake Erie Church in Madison, Ohio. We are a multicultural, multi-generational Pentecostal church. For more information, please visit our website at lakeeriechurch.com. Now, we hope you enjoy today's message. When you came in uh, this morning, you were given a booklet that looks like this. Uh, if you don't have one, the ushers are going to be in the aisle uh, with, uh, and ready to give you one. If you'll just raise your hand up, they'll bring one to you. We want every adult, uh, every teenager to have one of these books that uh, were prepared. You'll notice that there are 21 days of devotions in the booklet. Uh, and then in between weeks one and two, uh, you will find some documentation that Sherry has provided and then between weeks three, uh, two and three, you will find information that Pastor Jason Atkins wrote uh, regarding the power of fasting in his own life so that you can have that resource uh, as well. And again, we provided this to you just to walk alongside uh, this season of 21 days. Now, I'm going to say in a moment more about my own journey, but let me just say, don't overthink this. Don't overthink this. You're not going to a monastery on the backside of the world for the next 21 days. You're going to go to work. You're going to go to school. But in that season, you're going to be committing yourself to prayer and fasting because of your desire to get closer to God. Shelly and I are asking God for 100 people who will join us in this journey. We don't uh, provide a lot of specificity to what fasting you should do. We, as as uh, Sherry just said, we try very much to let you pray about that and be led of the Lord. But if you uh, have questions, we want to try to answer those because we do believe that fasting is a doorway to spiritual breakthrough. And it will draw you closer to the Lord. It will cause there to be a greater sensitivity. In fact, when, we, when I first started thinking about this, I thought about the impact of why 21 days of focused prayer would be important to our church. And I listed three, and they're on the screen. That we would be more spiritually sensitive to what is taking place around us. That by prayer and fasting, we would be more spiritually sensitive to what's going on around us in our home, on our job. I mean, there are things that are happening in the spirit that you're not even aware of because you're not tuned into them. Prayer and fasting will give you that sensitivity. Number two, that we would be spiritually focused for the assignment that God has given us personally and corporately. That in a season of prayer and fasting, we would see with clarity, spiritual clarity, what it is that God is trying to do in us. What He is trying to accomplish through us uh, in this world. You may, you may remember a few weeks ago we talked about the Father who brought his son to Jesus. And Jesus said, when the disciples said, why could we not take care of this? He said, this kind of thing requires what? Prayer and fasting. So that you can be prepared and focused for the assignment that God has given you personally. And thirdly and finally, that we would be spiritually equipped to serve our family, our community, and the world. And I'm praying that during this season that there will be miracles that take place in your life, in your family. And, and, and one of the things that I personally am doing is I am 
I'm, I've created a list of things I'm asking God for during this season. And I'll say more about that at a later time in the, in the message. But, but I've been very specific in coming to a place where I say, God, these are some outcomes that I feel like I am led by your spirit to, to ask for. And I've already been doing that day after day, getting ready for this time, getting myself uh, prepared for that. And so I want to encourage you to prayerfully sign up and commit yourself to a season of prayer and fasting. For our new believers, we always say you should pray five minutes every day and you should read five verses of Scripture every day. But for some of you who are more seasoned, maybe you do more than that. Maybe you do commit to two or three sessions in the day when you pray for 10 minutes. You give God 10 minutes. Maybe during your lunch hour, you set aside five or 10 minutes in your lunch hour and just focus on the Lord and pray. Or maybe you make a conscious decision that you're going to forego lunch on a particular day. And during that lunch hour, you focus on the Lord with prayer and dedication. We're believing that God is going to do amazing things coming out of 21 days of prayer and fasting. So here's what I want you to do before we preach this morning. I want you to take your right hand and place it over your heart. I want you to take your left hand and focus it. Just kind of lift it toward the Lord. <laughs> and I want you to pray a very simple prayer. Lord, help me to be obedient to you in these 21 days. Would you just bow your head now and pray that prayer in your own way? Lord, in these 21 days, would you help each and every one of us to be obedient to the voice of the Lord and to do what God speaks in our heart to do? Maybe somebody today, somebody sitting here today, somebody watching online, listening to a podcast, will hear the voice of God giving them direction about how they should respond to this challenge. And I pray, Lord, that none of this would be about what we do, but about how we acknowledge what you are doing. You promise that if we draw near to you, you would draw near to us. So, Father, help us to walk in that direction. Take that next step. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. God bless you. I look forward to hearing from you that you're going to join in this commitment to us. And uh, if you have not had a chance, fill that card out, drop it off as you go out today. There'll be someone in the lobby that will be receiving those when the day is over. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians chapter 4. I've been asking this question all week. If you follow our social media and other forms of communication, what would it be like if a hundred people prayed as one? What would happen at Lake Erie Church if a hundred people prayed as one voice to God? And so over the next three Sundays, uh, Pastor Dustin and I are going to be preaching what I consider to be three of the classic great passages in the Bible about prayer. This one this morning from Philippians 4 is one of my all-time favorites. So I'm going to ask you to stand if you would and let's read it together. It'll be on the screen 
All right, let's read it out together. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for what you're about to do in this room today. Quicken our hearts and our minds by your word and your spirit. And we are careful that your name receive all praise and glory in Jesus' name. And everybody says, you may be seated. I like simple. I am a simple guy. My wife has slipped out, but if she were here, she would tell you that's not true. But I do like simple. I like things that are simple. 2003, I switched from a Windows-based computer system to a Mac because I like the simplicity of Mac. In fact, I tell people all the time, if you have a Mac and you're struggling to understand what's happening and you're looking at the screen and you can't figure it out by looking at that screen, you're thinking too hard. Because Apple made its dollar on making its products user-friendly, simple. I like simple. Complexity stresses me. I don't like things that are complex. I am in love with Skechers' new shoes. The slip-ins. Just slip in and go. I love that. And I haven't worn socks since 2002. Now that really frets my mother-in-law terribly because she's worried that you will think I'm poor. I like simplicity. And the reason that I start with this is because I think that as I've thought through the years, I feel the same about prayer. Because as I think about my own life, I realize I've struggled at times because I made prayer too complex. I made prayer too big. And I overthought it as a concept. And it's why I love this passage of Scripture. Because it is so simple. And its four major points are so simple that almost anybody can follow them. And I want to just briefly walk you through these and then we're going to experience a group prayer experience together. So I'm asking that nobody get up and leave or, or do that. Just stay with me a few moments. We're going to do a prayer exercise together as a group. Simple. A simple prayer exercise with all voices as one. Speaking to the Lord. Listen to what Paul says. Four things. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for what He has done. And then Paul goes on to promise that if you were willing to do that, if you do those four things, then you will experience God's peace. Now, peace is one of those words that is a subjective word, meaning that peace to one person may not in fact be peace to somebody else. But what he promises you is that you will get God's peace 
And then he says about it that it is a concept that is very difficult for people to understand. A peace that is, excuse me, a peace that is beyond human understanding. What does that mean? It means it's going to be difficult for you to figure out how there could be so much peace in the middle of so much chaos. It's going to be that you have God's peace in your heart at a time when everybody around you is falling apart. God's peace will be the result of not worrying about everything, praying about everything, telling God what you need and thanking Him for what He's done. So let's break this down and just walk through it real quickly. First thing, don't worry about anything. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, stop worrying. Now, the reason that we start there is because we all do. In fact, researchers have discovered that every person in this room has at least three or four identifiable worries every day. That means you're worried about three or four things every day. may not be the same thing, but you're worried about three or four things every day. But what is the outcome of such worry? The research goes on to say, 91% of the things you're worrying about are never going to come true. 91% of your worries are false alarms. The remaining 9% of your worries that are true will have better outcomes than you expect 33% of the time. So in other words, you're worried about it, but it's going to be better than you think it's going to be 33% of the time. Now, I don't have to tell you that excessive worry will affect you mentally and physically. It will cause you problems in your body, in your mind, in your spirit if you excessively worry. So the obvious question is, why do we worry? Why is it that we are obsessed with worry? Because Paul says, don't worry about anything. Now that's a big word, isn't it? Anything. Don't worry about anything. Well, we worry because we are problem solvers. We worry because we're always trying to solve problems, aren't we? We're always trying to resolve a problem. We're always trying to figure out how to solve that problem. And so at, by nature, we worry about it. And the more emotionally invested that we are, the more worry that we carry. It's caused by our anticipation of a future negative experience. We worry because we're not sure how it's going to turn out, which leads me to number two. We worry because we fear that we are losing control. Our worry is caused by the fact that we worry that we don't have enough control over the situation. We worry over our children because we're losing control of them. Maybe they're getting older and they're more on their own and we worry because we're not sure if they're ready to leave the nest. It's that loss of control that drives our worry. It's our desire to make sure that we can control. Can I just help you? You're never really in control. You think you are. You hope you are. You have all this responsibility you're trying to manage and control. But in reality, you're never in control. 
You're just managing your processes. Here's the third reason we worry, because we just care so much. We worry because we care too much. Our anxiety is driven by the fact that we are overly invested in our own problems or in the problems of other people. I am married to a girl who I have to constantly remind, you cannot save everybody. You cannot save everybody. You, can, you get overly invested in the problems of other people and it affects you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Anxiety is a problem driven by caring too much and overthinking. So what is the solution for worry? How do you overcome worry? i tell you how I learned to overcome worry. It doesn't mean I don't worry. But when I find myself excessively worrying, I always drive my heart toward an attitude of worship. I was reading this when I was going through school about, I was going through psychology classes, and I was reading about this guy who had a patient that came in to his uh, office, and he says to his therapist, I am so worried and I am so overcome with anxiety, I can't function, I can't breathe. I've got this issue with my ex-wife and I, I just, I'm so consumed with it. I cannot find peace and I am a nervous wreck. And the guy said, I think I can help you. He goes over to the closet and he pulls out a pillow and he put this pillow down in the, the seat of a chair and he taped a picture of the ex-wife on the back of the chair. And he says to the man, get on your knees in front of this chair and stare at the picture of your ex-wife until you feel that anxiety building. And when you do, you just start frailing at that pillow. You just start beating that pillow until your anxiety is eased. I laughed my head off. But I got to thinking. You know, the difference between that scenario and my scenario is that when my anxiety arrives, I can go to worship and I get that same relief. That same relief from my worry because when I start worshiping and I allow my attitude of worship to grow, what I began to realize is the thing I'm worried about, God's bigger. The thing that I'm concerned about, God already has it and I can release it and let it go. I can allow the Holy Spirit to move in my heart and life through worship, allowing worship to take me to the place where I see God as the one who ultimately has control over everything. The antidote for worry is worship. Don't worry, he said, about anything. I love the words of the song, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That's number one. Number two, pray about everything. Everybody, somebody say everything. Notice the phrase in the verse. Pray about, he said, he said don't worry about anything. Instead, I love that. Instead, pray about everything. When Paul inserted the word instead, he's suggesting to us that in the place of worry, we should substitute more prayer. That instead of worrying, we should pray more about everything. And he says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. 
What does it mean to pray about everything? The word everything means there isn't anything too small to bring to God. It simply means that you can talk to God about everything. Everything. Not some things, but everything. And I think what it means to pray about everything is to cultivate an attitude of prayer. A posture of prayer and a frame of mind that allows me to use prayer as the immediate response to everything that I face in life. To be able to respond in prayer immediately to God for everything that I am facing in that moment. I've done this so many times in my life. I grew up with a mother who was such a dedicated prayer warrior. My mother got up at 6 o'clock every morning and she prayed from 6 until 7. And my mama was a screamer. And she screamed out her prayers. And so nobody really slept from 6 to 7. We just laid in our bed and listened to mom pray. Mom prayed off of a list. And so as she would pray that list, I knew at some point my name is coming up. She's going to be praying about me in a few moments. But there's something now as I'm older and I look back, something powerful about the fact that every morning my mother laid everything before the Lord in prayer. And down through the years, her prayer life was intimidating to me. I'd try to get up and pray at 6 o'clock. I couldn't stay awake. I found out 6 o'clock's not my prayer time. I had to find other times. And one day when I was reading the scripture and kind of meditating on it when the Bible, when Paul said pray without ceasing, it was like the Lord taught me that you can have an attitude about prayer that allows you to basically pray all the time. Wherever you are, it doesn't have to be so formalized. You don't have to be standing or sitting. You don't have to be in a church or out. Wherever you are, in whatever condition you are, you can have an attitude of prayer. You can develop a posture of prayer that allows you to pray anywhere you are. You know where I've prayed recently? In the aisles of the Giant Eagle grocery store here in Madison. The other day I had something on my mind that was just bothering me and I just began, I, I probably should have prayed more quietly. But I just began to say, Lord, I'm just casting my burden on you. And on the other aisle, I heard a woman go, Amen. <laughs> if you followed around in the car sometimes, you'd think I'm talking to myself, but I'm not. I'm actually talking to the Lord while I'm driving my car. While I'm going about my daily business, I'm talking to God about everything. I'm learning that I can pray. I can have a posture of prayer about anything and everything. James says in James chapter 5 verse 13, Is there anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Anyone happy? Let them sing songs. Is anyone about you sick? Call for the elders of the church to pray over them. When needs arise, when situations arise, you can have a posture of prayer that you can pray at any moment. And I've tried to be more intentional. Even with some of you, last Sunday in the aisle, a woman said, listen, I need you to pray for my father-in-law. I said, let's pray right now. Let's pray right now. We don't have to wait. It doesn't have to go on a prayer list for next week. Pray right now. Let's pray right now. And we did about her father-in-law right there in that moment. Because you can pray about everything but before we move on I want to ask this question because it's very important to me what kind of prayers should we pray 
What kind of prayers in this 21 days should you be praying? And as I have prayed to prepare my heart, and I've prayed for you to try to lead you where I think God wants us to go, I told our prayer team this morning, I feel like the Lord is challenging me to tell you that during these 21 days, why don't you pray some dangerous prayers? Why don't you pray some impossible prayers? Praying to God about things that feel like they are absolutely impossible. Because the Bible promises you this, that He is able to do exceedingly more than you could ever ask or think of Him. The God that you're praying to is more powerful than any need that you could ever bring to Him. So I started making some impossible prayer requests. You ready? God, I'm believing you for the supernatural payoff of this property. We owe just a little bit less than $1.3 million. Do you know that's pennies to God? That's pennies to God. It may very well be that somebody listening to me right now has the ability to write a check for that somehow or another. I don't know. But I'm telling you this. I believe God is able to supernaturally pay off this property. For His glory and His glory alone. I guess we lost our light bill. I'll ask our, our facilities guys to get up there and figure out what happened. Here's another one. I'm asking God to supernaturally heal every person in our church who's battling cancer. Dangerous prayers. Impossible prayer. Oh, I know what the doctor says. The doctor says it's an uphill battle, but it's not an uphill battle with God. By his stripes, by his wounds, God can heal every person in our church who's battling cancer. Anybody believe that with me? God, I'm believing you for a keyboard player to help Pastor Jerome. You saw what happened to us in December. We had to hire people to come in. God can help us to have a keyboard player so that he's got somebody to help him carry that load. I just, I'm a very practical person. The Bible said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers. I, I've been praying for some of you that started coming to our church and I recognize that God's been answering my prayer. Why couldn't God answer that prayer? Don't be surprised if you see somebody playing the keyboard in a few months that doesn't look like Pastor Jerome. But if it is, you'll know that the Lord has answered the prayer and sent us what we needed. Here's another one. You're, we're probably not ready for this. 50 new students that are saved this year through our student ministries. So I want every teenager that's in the room and young adult to stand up. Teenagers and young adults stand up. All over the room. There you go. Yeah, you stand up when you get out of your seat. That's what happened. You stand. 
Now, here's my question. Do any of you know anybody that you care about as a friend that doesn't know Jesus? What if your prayer during the 21 days was, Lord, help me bring to Jesus? What if God were to save 50 teenagers this year? Save them. 50 young adults, 50 teenagers. If God were to save them, listen, I was out the other day and I was thinking about this. How many lost children are there in this county? How many lost children are there in this community? God saved 50, 50 of them during this year. You can be seated. Thank you, guys. Here's my point. It may feel like that's impossible. We don't even have 50 kids ourselves. But God can save 50. By the time we come back next year, I could tell you God has saved 50 kids who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ through our ministries for students around this church because I serve a God who can do more than we ever ask or think. What kind of impossible, dangerous prayers would God call you to pray for this year? Because he wants you to pray in faith, believing that God will do exceedingly more than you ask or think. Here's the third one. Pray about everything, but tell God what you need. Tell God what you need. Somebody said, well, doesn't the Lord already know? He does. He already knows. But like a father who loves to have his children, or a mother who loves to have her children come and talk about what they need. God loves for you to come and tell him what you need. And you may have told him over and over and over, but God still gets joy and pleasure out of you expressing to God what you need. The word here implies an urgency. And it may, it may be a little awkward to say it, but to the point of demanding not that we demand from God, but that we urgently plead with God for what we need. I love the, the little scripture in Hebrews chapter 4. I've used it so many times. Verse 16, he says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Over the years, I've preached often about that one word there, boldly. What God wants you and I to do is to come boldly. Now, you kids that are in the room today, think about this. You know, when you need something from your parents, you don't go in there and mealy mouth around. You walk in and say, hey, Dad, I need $10. I need $20. I need a dress, I need a pair of shoes, I need whatever. I need tires for my car. Boldly. And, and you, you don't have to put on airs to be bold with God. I get tickled how some of us even pray. We like, it's like we have earthly language and then prayer language. And our prayer language a lot of times for people like that is in the King James. Oh, thou mighty God. Who rules heaven and earth and spoke life into existence. 
God's got to be going, come on. You don't talk to anybody else like that. Talk to me about what you need. Tell me what you need. I've stood in this sanctuary many a time and stood in places and said, God, I need this. I need that. When I was pastoring my first church at High Point, we didn't have a bass player. Probably told this story before, but we didn't have a bass player. I'd hold that bass in my hand. I'd say, God, give me a bass player. We need somebody to play the bass in our church. God, please give us a bass player. One day a guy knocked on my door and he said, listen, I'm moving up here from South Carolina and and I'm just checking out the schools and trying to find a place for my family. And I'd love to walk around your church. We're looking for a church. I said, okay, we walked around the church. We got in the sanctuary. There was that bass guitar leaned up against that amp, which I had actually bought at a pawn shop. Because I felt like I needed to show God some initiative. We don't have a bass player, but we got a bass. Whenever you send me a bass player, we're ready. We walked up on that stage. I'll never forget that man looked and he said, oh, you got a bass player? I said, we don't, but we're praying for one. And he said, preacher, I think I'm the answer to your prayer. He said, because all the way up here from South Carolina, I said, Lord, help me find a church that needs a bass player. That's the kind of God you're talking to this morning. That's the kind of God that you're telling him what you need. God, I need help with my children. I need help in my marriage. This is what I need. And pray that prayer and tell God exactly what you need. Here's the last one. Thank him for what he's done. Tell God what you need. Thank him for what he's done. You know, I've grown up in the church all my life and the old timers. When I say old timers, I'm talking about my grandfather and his generation. They taught me, even as a small child, that the blessings of God come in on the wings of praise. That when you praise him, when you worship him, when you give him glory, when you thank him for what he has done. Think about the story of King Jehoshaphat in, in the, the book of 2 Chronicles 20. They were in a battle and they did not know how they were going to win. God said, put the singers out front. Start with praise. Start with worship. And as they sang the praises of God, God set encampments against the enemy and the victory was won and they never had to fight a battle. It was all because they started with praise. Praising God and giving God glory. Having confidence that God hears you and thanking Him in advance for what He has done. I do this in my own life. I will start by saying, God, I thank you for what you have done. This week, walking in the aisles of the church here, I was thanking God for what the Lord has done in my own life. You don't, you don't do that very long until you begin to feel His presence. And the glory of the Lord because you're beginning to connect with God because you're acknowledging what He's done. I love the Old Testament prayers and I would encourage you sometime in your study to go back and read the Old Testament prayers. Here's how they start almost every prayer. To the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who brought our fathers forth from the land of affliction to a land that flowed with milk and honey. What are they doing? They're rehearsing the greatness of God. 
They're reminding themselves of this is the God that I'm praying to. The God who has always been faithful. The God who has always provided for our need. The God who helped me when my babies were sick. The God that put groceries on my table. That's the God I'm praying to. He is a faithful God and he hears me when I pray. Don't be afraid to praise God in advance for what you're asking Him to do. Tell Him what you need and thank Him for what He has done. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Now we invite you to visit one of our services soon. For more information, please visit us at lakeeriechurch.com.